Welcome back to another episode of Win Championship Repeat Boston Sports Podcast. And on this episode of the podcast, we have big Red Sox news basically taking their offseason from less than average to better than most. Um, and they added in a big piece. We'll talk about that and their future. And we will talk about the Patriots and the Celtics afterwards. And let's get into the Red Sox. Let's talk about the big signing of Trevor Story. So the Red Sox decided to do something that they needed to do. Trevor Story agrees to a deal reportedly for six years, $140 million, which is very, very good. So he, after four years, has opt-outs if he wants to. But he is here six years, $140 million. He will be the everyday second baseman. And there was a few things that I thought the Red Sox need to do this offseason. And the biggest was get a second baseman. Whether that be Kike Hernandez moving to second and you fill the outfield. Whether that was going after one of the big-named free agents. And... They did that. They did exactly what they needed to. Last year, um, he batted .251 with uh, 103 OPS, 24 home runs, and 20 stolen bases. He was with Colorado for most of, you know, his career. And so, basically, now you have Trevor Story, who is joining in the fold with the Red Sox, joining Bogarts and Devers and Bobby Dalback in the infield. Now, it seems like Trevor Story is interested in playing second base, and it seems like Xander and Alex Cora and the Red Sox organization really was fighting hard to get Trevor Story. And Trevor Story, whether he was their first option or their last option, he is in Boston. This is exactly what Charm Bloom needed to do. This is exactly what their team needed to do because they made it so far in the playoffs better than expected. You can't be like, oh, our team was good. Let's just see where we are. You need to get pieces to get better, right? To say that they beat Tampa Bay and can do it in another you know, five-game series or seven-game series or whatever, it's not going to be as easy if they even do it, right? They got what they got because it was good, and they played well, and Tampa Bay might have not played as good as they should have. They beat the Yankees in one game, which they probably do that 90% of the time, but you never know. So bringing in Trevor Story is the upgrade that they needed at second base. And he's long-term flexibility in terms of if Xander leaves, he can play shortstop. And, you know, I think for the right now, he's the best player that was available and Correa was gone and the other guys out there were gone and he ended up joining the fold. Now there were other guys like Javier Baez and, you know, Marcus Simeon who were free agents that went elsewhere that played second base primarily and they were shortstop second bases and it seemed like Trevor Story was at first just shortstop or nothing, but now they have flexibility in terms of their potential lineups moving forward. And Trevor Story can play second for this year, and then next year they have free agents to deal with, and J.D. Martinez and Xander Bogarts, he can move back to shortstop. Maybe 
they move on from J.D. Martinez and maybe the defensive issues of Raphael Devers move him to designated hitter and he becomes the everyday DH and you have Xander move to third base and you have uh, Trevor Story back to his original shortstop and you have somebody in the uh, second base spot whether that's going after a free agent whether that's Jeter Downs whether that's Car uh, Christian Arroyo but Trevor Story gives them one of the best lineups in all of baseball. And if you look at this lineup, Trevor Story, Rafael Devers, Xander Bogarts, J.D. Martinez, Alex Verdugo, Bobby Dalbach, Enrique Hernandez, Christian Vasquez, J.K. Bradley Jr. Do I think Hunter Renfro instead of Bradley Jr. would have made this the better lineup? Yes, but Red Sox wanted the prospects, and Bradley Jr. comes back for his defense, and he's fast, and he gives them speed, and... They didn't need his power. You know, you have Trevor Story, Devers, Bogarts, J.D., Verdugo, Hernandez, Dalback, Vasquez. Bradley Jr. does not need to hit. He can be sort of a defensive guy. He can be, you know, a scorer. He can do so much um, for the Red Sox. And, you know, there is so many other outfielders who, you know, are available, which means, um, you know, maybe they go and add someone else into the outfield, but if this is the end of their moves, they look pretty good. I mean, the Blue Jays added in Kevin Gaussman, and they added in some relievers, and uh, they added in Matt Olson, and the Yankees did the Donaldson trade, and Tampa Bay kept what they had and had some smaller pieces. The Red Sox need to make a move to keep pace with the American League East, and I think they've gotten themselves to either number two or number one in the American League with this move. It depends on how Blue Jays do. But the Yankees struck out twice with Story and with Correa. I don't even know if Story was a guy on their radar, to be honest. I don't know if they had planned on Correa and had no idea on Story. And when it was all said and done, and the Twins scooped up Correa. Maybe uh, it was too late to go after Story because he was already entrenched in talks with other teams that it didn't really materialize on the other side. So maybe for you know Trevor Story and his team you know they wanted to go somewhere where they could win and the Red Sox are the best shot I also want to point out that this has been brought to my attention through different articles and tweets and whatnot the twins traded away Donaldson and the other pieces to get rid of cap space which the Yankees were happy to oblige and take on Josh Donaldson and in the end they got Carlos Correa. So maybe the trade the Yankees made with the Twins actually gave Correa a shot to go to the Twins and screwed the Yankees, which is always great to see because the Yankees haven't been that successful and I don't want them to be successful. And so the Red Sox honestly might have, with this group, the best starting lineup in the American League East. I do think the pitching for the Blue Jays is just far superior than what the Red Sox have, but in terms of this lineup, it's pretty good, and you have infinite opportunities with this team, and if you go to, I think, 2023 MLB free agency, and the free agents available, it's a way, ways away, but um, if you look at the um, guys who can be free agents, um, there's, uh, just position-wise, Jose Abreu, Josh Bell, there's, uh, Brandon Bell, Yuri Gurriel, 
um, and Max Muncy, uh, Josh Harrison, Adam Frazier, uh, Whit Merrifield, uh, Rogner Odour, uh, Jace Peterson, uh, Donovan Solano, Colton Wong could be a free agent. Um, you have uh, Tim Anderson. You have uh, Charlie Copelson, Anderson Simmons, Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson, Jonathan Villar. In uh, other positions, there's uh, Matt Carpenter, Matt Duffy, uh, Hanser Alberto, uh, Malachi Franco, you know, Justin Turner. Uh, so there is a ton of free agents in next year uh, that could potentially be options to upgrade also for the Red Sox. They have, um, you know, Andrew Bantendi is a free agent. Adam Duvall is a free agent. Jock Peterson. Um, and there's also Charlie Blackman, who has a player option. Cole Calhoun, Joey Gallo, Mitch Hanniger, Aaron Judge, Manuel Margot. Will Myers has a club option. So who knows what happens? And who knows where the... Red Sox go, but this is a great team, and this is a great group, and adding in Trevor Story was the greatest for the Red Sox, and I like the move, and I think they need to do it, and sometimes free agents don't work out, and that was the case with Carl Crawford, that was the case with Pablo Sandoval, and sometimes they do work out. I think J.D. Martinez has done great, and I think he's been a great piece, and I like what he brings to their team so at the end of the day in my opinion this move works and it works well and i'm happy that they got trevor story and am i gonna say he was my number one choice probably not because i didn't really know who my number one choice was probably marcus Simeon, but i do like trevor story and i like what he brings to the red sox and so kudos to cherum bloom for making this move and you know, we'll see what happens. And, you know, this is a long-term group. I do feel like down the line, Devers and Bogarts will be free agents soon, and they'll have to make a tough decision on that. But if some of these younger prospects in the infield make their way up and have, you know, success, if Jeter Downs comes up this year and other guys, they could make it work. I mean, they could get rid of Bogarts, trade him away, or Devers, trade him away, and get pieces to get maybe a different look or save money. But right now, this group, it's probably number one or two in the American League East, if I'm just saying so myself. Now, the Boston Celtics are up next, and they are the four seed right now, and they have a game and a half lead over Chicago and a game behind Philly and Milwaukee. Now, I will say, being the four seed for the Boston Celtics is probably the prime position for the Celtics and I'll tell you why so Celtics I think can beat Chicago in five games or seven games and I think they could beat Cleveland in five games or seven games because Cleveland's a half game back of Chicago so I think that the Celtics can easily beat Chicago and Cleveland in a series in the first round because they'd be at home they got great defense great scoring good players veterans their coach has seemed to be melding well with these players and the Celtics' core of Tatum, Brown, and Smart wanted Idame Udoka to come and play here. And they got the approval, or Brad Stevens got the approval from them. And that holds a lot of weight. And he's done well, and he showed his players that he's a good head coach. And he comes with this San Antonio Spurs mindset. 
and that was very successful for Greg Popovich, and it comes to Boston. Now, when you go to the next round, it looks like they would be taking on the Miami Heat, which Miami's the best team in the East, but by no means are they, you know, cream of the crop. And I think the Celtics can hold their own against Miami, especially in a division in which Miami looks like they're the only team that could make the playoffs outside of maybe Charlotte. So I think the Celtics have a good chance against Miami. Miami, if things go as they show the records, they'd be playing Brooklyn in the first round, which if Ben Simmons can get healthy by the playoffs and Kyrie can come back by the playoffs healthy, and Durant can be there healthy in their core, in their bench, and Seth Curry and Joe Harris, I don't know if Miami's even getting out of the first round with Brooklyn in full force. Granted, they do have Ben Simmons coming into a situation in which he's never played in Brooklyn yet. Kyrie hasn't played all year except for a few road games. And it's interesting to see this matchup and see if Brooklyn actually has a shot against Miami, which maybe they do. And I think we have a good shot against Brooklyn if we play them. Miami, if we play them, our defense is just far and away better than the defense of Brooklyn. Brooklyn has all offense. Joe Harris, Seth Curry, they have um, Kyrie, and Ben Simmons brings them defense, but I don't know if they have what it takes. Miami just doesn't have that sort of top-tier star that I think most of the other teams out here have. I think, you know, Brooklyn has Kevin Durant, Chicago has Zach Levine, and they also have Jamar DeRozan who's playing at like a star level. Tatum in Boston, Giannis, and then James Harden and Joel Embiid in Philly. I don't know if Miami has, I don't know if Jimmy Butler's on that level anymore. I don't know if Tyler Hero's there, or Bam Adebayo. They're great players and all-star players, but I don't know. I think the Celtics would have a good shot. If the Celtics ended up being the three or the uh, two seed, yes, they would be facing off against either Toronto or Cleveland or Brooklyn or whoever. Um, and while that wouldn't pose a difficulty, what could be a difficulty is if we have to play Milwaukee. I think playing against Philadelphia would be an easier matchup because I think Philly lacks a lot on the defensive end in terms of Joel Embiid and Thibault are really their only good defenders. And I think Milwaukee's got Drew Holiday and Giannis and Middleton and so many great pieces. And I think, you know, Milwaukee has a more, you know, competitive team in my opinion. And I think because it's Philadelphia's first year with this group, mostly just having James Harden in here for the first time, it's going to be something they have to deal with. Granted, he's like a top 10 player, so that's not as big of an issue. But I think it's easier against Philly, in my opinion, if you're the Celtics, in comparison to the uh, situation involving um, involving the, uh, you know, Milwaukee Bucks, which I think would be much harder to deal with. So in my own sort of opinion on the situation, that's where I see um, I see um, things going with uh, the Celtics. I do believe that the Celtics have um, a lot of talent, and I think this pairing of Derek White and Marcus Smart has worked out. I think, you know, between those two guys, things seem to be just far and away better than they need to be. And I love what they bring uh, to the table in Boston. I think Boston gives you so much. And I think Boston gives you 
you know, a lot of different talent. And, you know, that's something that a lot of teams don't have out there. And I think there are so many, you know, great teams in the NBA. And, you know, I think, you know, some of them, some of them uh, can't hold their own against the Celtics. And I honestly think that the Celtics are one of the better teams in basketball. And if this was their group at the start of the season, you know, they could have been far and away better than everybody else. And they could have been one of the best teams in the East. They could have been number one in the East, to be honest with you. I don't know how it would have went, but I think they uh, could have definitely gone out and been very good in the Eastern Conference. And so we are going to, you know, hope that this sort of success keeps going and that things end up going in the right way for the Boston Celtics. And I am 100% happy with where they've gone, 100% happy with what they've done. And I think they are as good of a team as you can get in today's um, world of basketball. So the next thing I want to do is I want to look at the NFL draft and I want to look at position of need for the Patriots and I'm going to do this um, for every position of need and I'm going to give you my top two choices in each round for that position. So we're going to do wide receiver to start it off. So this podcast will be wide receiver. So what we're going to do is look at wide receivers, two of them in the first round, second round, all the way down. But we will be looking at wide receivers within the Patriots drafting range. So we are not looking at wide receivers that are out of range up. Uh, We are looking at guys who are in their sort of range depending on the situation. So in the first round, we have Jamison Williams and Chris Olov. Now, Jamison Williams went to Alabama. You know, there's the connection with Nick Saban and Mac Jones went to Alabama. And there's some familiarity uh, between, you know, Alabama's system and the Patriots system. So if it's an easy plug-in, it's an easy plug-in. And Jamison Williams could be an easy plug-in for their team. Chris Olov is the other wide receiver. And he is very speedy, very fast, has great hands. And, you know, I think if they want to go wide receiver in the first round, those are the two guys to go for. Because I do think that those are the best options for me in terms of where the Patriots could go with their first round picks. So those two guys um, are slated in the first round. Now, in terms of the second round, we have... Alec Pierce from Cincinnati, wide receiver. And we have wide receiver George Pickens from Georgia. Now, these are two wide receivers who, at this point, are slated around or a little bit below where the Patriots are. And I think, you know, these are two options if they want to go for someone in the second round. Um, In the third round, where the Patriots are sitting, uh, we have... Two good wide receivers who might go a little bit higher, who might not. David Bell from Purdue and Wandale Robinson from Kentucky. So I think these are two guys who would be pretty good choices in the third round. There are a ton of different wide receivers potentially in the third round. 
for the Patriots uh, to go for. Those two are close enough to their range that would make uh, for a good sort of uh, picks in that wide receiver spot. Now, in terms of the fourth round, and the fourth round has uh, not as many wide receivers as um, others, but uh, Romeo Dobes from Nevada is uh, a wide receiver that could go in uh, the fourth round, and then Christian Watson from North Dakota State also is a potential option for wide receivers in the fourth round. Those two guys are going to be probably on the board when the Patriots are there around where the Patriots are in the fourth round, and they could be pretty good options for New England if they want to go in that route, or down that route, I should say. Now, in the fifth round, there are two options I'm going to look at here, which are Kyle Phillips from UCLA and Kevin Austin Jr. from uh, Notre Dame. So these are two fifth-round wide receiver choices that the Patriots could end up going with if they wanted to. Uh, I'm not saying they have to, but if they wanted to. In the sixth round, we have wide receiver Danny Gray from Southern Methodist University, and we also have wide receiver uh, in the sixth round as well, Reggie Robinson Jr. So both of these guys are slated around where the Patriots will be sitting in the fourth round and potentially options for the Patriots in the uh, you know that part of the draft because you know they could go in that direction could make those moves and those are options for the Patriots right there now in terms of the seventh round Patriots don't have any draft picks in the seventh round so they wouldn't be able to get a wide receiver here unless they traded down or traded into it in some form the two choices I would have here um, since they don't have a draft choice, we have Trey Turner, wide receiver from Virginia Tech, and we have Malachi Carter, wide receiver from Georgia Tech. Uh, those are the best two wide receivers in the seventh round. There are others who could become available in the uh, in the seventh round, but um, in terms of wide receivers, those are the ones to go for. Um, so. It seems like the Patriots haven't had a lot of success with first-round wide receivers and second-round wide receivers. Um, if you look at the New England Patriots draft picks and sort of the um, the uh, players they've gone with at the wide receiver uh, in terms of uh, their uh, draft picks, um, you know, the uh, most recent ones that I can think of haven't really panned out. Um, in terms of wide receiver, they drafted Trey Nixon last year in the seventh round wide receiver. They did not draft a wide receiver at all in 2020. 2019 was the failure of Nikhil Harry. He just hasn't panned out at all. They drafted in the sixth round in 2018 Braxton Berrios. Um, so they haven't had success with their wide receivers so far, to my knowledge. 2017 was nothing. 2016 was uh, Malcolm Mitchell and Devin Lucian. Malcolm Mitchell had maybe one or two good seasons in New England and then was kind of out the door. 
Um, Lucian, I don't think he really did anything for the Patriots uh, at all. 2015 was no wide receivers. Um, they didn't really get a lot of offense uh, that year outside of a few players. Um, and 2014 was Jeremy Gallen in the seventh round. Uh, nothing really uh, out of that. Um, and I don't think he really did anything. They drafted in 2013 Aaron Dobson and Josh Boyce, which uh, both those guys had no success in New England. Um, and then we got Jeremy Ebert in 2012. Nothing came from him. We got no 2011 wide receivers. We also moved down to 2010 where we had Taylor Price, who didn't really do too much, at least for the Patriots. Moving down to 2009, Brandon Tate and Julian Edelman. Julian Edelman is the first wide receiver we get now, 2009, the only one who's done anything so far in this list for the Patriots. He is He's very good, and he was very good. We have Matthew Slater, who was 2008. He's not really a wide receiver. He's more special teams at this point, but he was brought in as a wide receiver, so he's done a lot on special teams. 2007, no wide receivers. 2006 was second-round pick Chad Jackson. Um, I don't really remember him in a Patriots uniform, uh, but... Uh, I don't really think he did a ton, to my knowledge. Going down to 2005, we got no wide receivers. 2004, P.K. Sam, who didn't really do too much at all for the Patriots. Um, and I don't know if he had a great career in the NFL. We got 2003, Bethel Johnson, who played in 50 games. Uh, four touchdowns, 606 yards, 39 receptions. Um, so... Yeah, uh, decent. I mean, nothing special, but decent. Then we have one of my favorite wide receivers in 2002, Dion Branch, who um, he, he was a big part of Patriots uh, history, in my opinion, at least the recent one. And then also David Givens, who had a, uh, I think he had a decent career in 58 games with the uh, Patriots. Um, so not too bad out of him. Going down the line, uh, 2001, we got none. No wide receivers. The year 2000, Tom Brady, no wide receivers. Um, and then we go down to 1999, Sean Mori, who was 109 games, uh, 168 yards, 11 receptions, 13 touchdowns. So for the most part, Patriots wide receivers haven't really panned out outside of Matthew Slater, who I don't know if that really counts because he's special teams, and Julian Edelman. So... Uh, yeah, I'd say most likely the wide receivers in the draft don't pan out, so I'd expect the Patriots not to go all out for one, and maybe they get one later in the draft and don't use first, second, or third round picks on wide receiver unless they feel like they want to.